0: Well, what do you make of these phrases? To the strongest, I found Rome, clay, I leave it marble. Pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose. And all my possessions for a moment of time. Ever heard these sayings before? And can you guess what they have in common? These are all the last words of several great people from history. Alexander, Alexander the Great's last words as he lay on his deathbed were, to the strongest. And this was in response to a question posed by his generals. Alexander had no heir, and so his generals gathered around and they asked him to which of them would go control of the empire, and to which he responded as his last words, to the strongest. As an interesting side note, Alexander may have said in Greek, Krateras which actually was the name of one of his generals, but that guy wasn't there. So the other generals may have just chosen to hear kratistos, which means to the strongest, but we never know. And a few others, Emperor Augustus, the founder and the first emperor of the Roman Empire, is known for his famous last words to the people where he said, Behold, I found Rome of clay, and I leave it as marble. He's basically patting himself on the back, letting them know that when he started, when he began to rule, Rome was a poor city made of clay, and and by the time that he's leaving his death, it's a prosperous city where every building is made of marble. But not all last words are so meaningful. Queen Marie Antoinette, her last words were, pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose. And this was in response to her executioner as she accidentally stepped on his shoe on the way to the guillotine, and she was then beheaded. And lastly, from Queen Elizabeth I of England, we we see a sad yet true commentary on life. Her last words were, all my possessions for a moment of time. At her end, she was willing to trade it all, even her kingdom, for just a little bit more time. But that is not a trade that even kings and queens can make. Life is short, your days are numbered, riches cannot buy you happiness or meaning or time. You have one life, so you better live it to the fullest, live it well, for there are no time extensions. The end of our days on this earth come quickly and suddenly and unexpectedly for most people, which is why for most, they don't have the time to to leave behind really thoughtful and meaningful last words. It's only those perhaps in the hospital who know their, their days are numbered, their time is short, who really reflect back on their lives and leave behind some truly impactful last words. Their, their last will and testament has real thought and reflection behind it, and it's these you want to listen to. Scripture is another place to turn, however, the best place to turn when it comes to finding some last words that really matters. Some last words that you really want to pay attention to. When a person is near their death and they know it, they, they don't have time to talk about the sports and weather. And they have precious few moments left, so who cares about TV and, and career choices and vacations and stuff like that? They really get to the point about what matters in life. And if this is coming from a godly person, you really want to perk up and listen because you won't get any greater wisdom from a godly person than when they are nearing death. And this is true of Jesus. Granted, all of his teaching is the perfect and inspired word of God, but on the night before his death, which he knew was coming, he left behind for his disciples. He gave to them some final instructions, a last will and testament, you could say. And it's so precious and powerful, and many people rightly regard His final instructions to his disciples as being especially impactful in Christ's final teachings, his last instructions to his disciples, you can find for yourself, captured in scripture in John chapters 13 through 17, truly some of his most memorable words. The same goes for the apostle Paul. Paul was a man so specially used by God. He leaves behind for us as well impactful final words there came a time when he knew that his end was near. He knew that soon he was going to be executed in Rome. He was imprisoned once in Rome, but he made it out. But the second time, he he knew one way or another that he was not going to make it out alive. So as he sat in that, that dark and damp jail cell, knowing, or knowing that his execution was certain, he picked up his pen one last time and he wrote one final letter, his, you could say, last words, And these also are recorded in Scripture. It is the letter of 2 Timothy. He writes to his child in the faith, his friend, his ministry partner, passing on the baton and passing on his concern for the churches to Timothy. And let me just say, speaking as a shepherd, for anyone else who is a shepherd, who has a shepherd's heart, you know that there's no letter in the New Testament quite like 2 Timothy that can really grab your heart and speak to your heart. When someone godly is at the end of their days and they speak, you want to listen. You want to hear what they have to say and heed what they have to say. And here in Sunday mornings, we've just begun the study of 2 Peter. And guess what? 2 Peter is Peter's last will and testament, you could say. Here we have Peter also at the end of his line. He knows that one way or another, he doesn't have much time left. He's going to die. And so he picks up his pen one last time, also from Rome, and he writes. But not to Timothy. He writes to the churches scattered abroad. His time is short. He doesn't have time to talk about the weather. But he does have a few things left to say. And his final message to the churches is captured in Second Peter. But we come to a passage in Second Peter this morning that really captures his heart and his sentiment behind the letter as a whole. We come to this morning, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and open them to Second Peter chapter 1. This passage, verses 12 through 15, it's the bridge between the introduction of his letter, verses 1 through 11, and in the main body. Peter knows what's going on. He can read the times. He knows that he's going to die sooner rather than later. And he knows that his voice of influence over the churches is going to end. But he also knows that there are competing voices rising up. And these voices come from false teachers. And these voices stand ready to fill the void that is being left by Peter and the other apostles as they die off. This is why he writes 2 Peter. He writes to ensure that the churches continue to listen to him, to the the apostles, to the apostolic testimony, to the true gospel. I mean, they were the apostles. These are the ones who knew Jesus, who spent time with him. They were commissioned by Jesus himself to be his representatives to the church. The churches should listen to them. But if the churches were to listen to these other voices, these false teachers, the result would be spiritual disaster. And so Peter writes all of Second Peter for this purpose, and in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 especially, we see his concern for the churches really come out. We also see his approach. How is Peter going to ensure that the churches listen to him, to the apostles? And the answer is by way of reminder. By reminder, he doesn't have something new to give them. He doesn't have something groundbreaking to share with them as his final words. They already know the truth. And what they really need to do is remember the truth, which they know, and cling to it. The best way for them to avoid error is just by sticking close to the truth. And the more they know the truth, the better able they will be to identify and reject false teaching. So he writes by way of reminder. He wants his final words to be critical reminders to them, just searing in their minds the truth. And he wants this letter to continue to remind them even after he's gone. So this is where we're at in Second Peter this morning, chapter 1. Let's let's begin by, by reading this passage and seeing the heart behind his last words to the churches. Second Peter chapter 1, follow along as we read verses 12 through 15. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me, And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter's final words here are not just his own. They come to us as inspired scripture. And we, the church today, face the same danger. And we, the church today, need the same reminder. There's still so much we can learn from Peter's message to the churches. So, Today, our aim is to try and extract four lessons to be learned from Peter's last words. That's where we're going with this passage. Four lessons to be learned from Peter's last words. And it's true, these aren't the actual final words to come from his mouth. But but this passage captures the heart and the desire behind 2 Peter as a whole. So four lessons to be learned from Peter's last words. And the first one is this, from verse 12. All believers need reminders. All believers need reminders. Look at verse 12 again. He begins by saying, "Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you." Therefore, he says, "I will always be ready to remind you of these things." Peter, he's just he's constantly ready. He's on the ready when dealing with these churches, to remind them of these things. But what are the these things that he's talking about? What's he going to remind them of? He's referring to all of the essential spiritual truths which he just discussed, which we just studied in verses 1 through 11, that you have received a faith by the righteousness of Christ, that Christ's divine power has given you everything you need for a life and godliness. That after saving you, God expects you to grow in godliness and Christian character. And that so long as you are growing and following the Lord, you can rest assured that he will welcome you into his kingdom. Everything we've been studying in verses 1 through 11, these are the core truths of salvation and sanctification, conversion and growth. And Peter stands ready to remind them of these things all the time. And and why? Why does he want to remind them so badly? It's because he wants them to learn these things inside and out. He wants them to know them so well. So he just keeps reminding them. When I was in seminary, I had a Greek professor who would just keep saying this one phrase over and over and over again. He would say this, Repetition is the key to learning. What is the key to learning? Repetition. Over and over again. Repetition is the key to learning. What what is the key to learning? Repetition. You just say the same thing over and over again. And it's kind of funny because that phrase in itself, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know how much Greek we all remembered, but everyone remembered that phrase because he repeated it so much. And here I am using it now. Repetition is the key to learning. What is the key to learning? Repetition. And Peter must have known this phrase. Maybe he made it up. Either way, he knew the importance of reminder, of repeating yourself so that people really learn what you're saying. And he wanted them to know these gospel truths and never forget. You know, in many ways, the New Testament is not, New Testament times are not different from our times today. Back then, people were constantly captivated by something new. They wanted something new. Remember, Paul was in Athens at one point, and he encountered these philosophers, these Greek philosophers. Remember what they did all day? He says, they did nothing all day but to discuss, to question, to tell, to hear something new. That's it. That's all they did was sit around and talk about something new. They wanted something new. It's really the same today. In the academic world, if you want to be taken seriously, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. You better come up with something new. Otherwise, you're nobody. Nobody cares to listen to you. People want something new. False teachers know this fact, which is why both back then and even still today, they continue to look for or invent some new spiritual truth that will attract attention and make a splash. That way people will follow them because after all, after all these years, they alone just found, discovered this new spiritual truth. And my old church had this guy call me up wanting us to, to read this book he wrote about this secret code he discovered in the Bible. It's amazing. Just, just now he just found this. But that's amazing. But Peter's thrust in his passage, which we share here, is that we don't teach anything new. We're not teaching anything new. Everything we teach here is old. I mean, really old. It's 2,000 years old or older. The gospel is old. God's truth is old. It's been around for a while, and it doesn't change. So there's really nothing new to say. And granted, in Peter's day, revelation was still being given, but by the time he's writing Second Peter, the churches had the truth. They were established in the truth. And for us especially, God's revelation is complete, and now it's really old. But since it doesn't change, we want to stick to this same old truth. It's the same old truth. Even back then, Peter shared the sentiment that they just needed to be reminded of the same old truth. Let's turn the page to 1 Peter, or rather, 2 Peter chapter 3, and look how he, he nearly ends the letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. He's getting to his conclusion. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Again, he says that you should, verse 2, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. It's the same thing. Even then, he wants them to remember old truths. Now, don't fear. Just because the Bible is old, doesn't mean it's stale. The Bible is not stale. God's Word is old, but it's still always fresh. The truth never gets stale for those who love the truth. It always comes alive. To those who know God, it brings fresh conviction every single time you read it. It speaks to you. And that is why, for those who know and love the Lord, the truth brings conviction every day. We want to be reminded of it every day and get that fresh conviction. Now look one more time at verse 12. He says again, therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. He wants to remind them, but but they already know these things. And Peter knows that these Christians, they know about salvation and sanctification and spiritual growth, assurance, all the stuff that he's talking about. They know this he knows that. They have this information somewhere in their brains. They also have, he says, they have been established in the truth, which means that they're on firm footing. Their roots are deep. These aren't baby Christians, little sapling Christians. These churches, they know the truths of the faith. But if this is the case, if, if they already know all this stuff and they've been established in it, Again, why is he trying so hard to remind them over and over again? It's because all believers, even mature believers, need reminders. All believers, even mature believers, can forget. The problem is not that the information leaves your brain. The problem is that the information leaves the front of your brain. The knowledge of the truth can easily get tucked away into some back corner of your mind where you're not thinking about it. And if this happens, the truth is not guiding you, and that's a problem because we need the truth to guide us always. This is how even Christians can fall into sin. I mean, look, you know this. You know that you're not supposed to sin. I mean, you know that in your brain. I should not sin, but you still do. So how is that? I mean, did you forget? Well, no, it's not that you forgot, you know better. It's just that sometimes this knowledge gets set aside. It's no longer guiding us. It's virtually ignored. The flesh takes advantage of this. And that's why the solution is to keep the truth always in front of you. You do that by, by reminder, constantly reminding yourself what you already know, but what you need to know right in front of you. This is why remembering is such a big deal. I recently went on a camping trip, and what happens every time you go camping? You get bit by a mosquito. It just happens every time. And I didn't get devoured this time, but I had one bite on my left elbow that was really bad. I mean, that guy must have feasted on me because that bump was huge. And when you get a mosquito bite, even a, a big one, everyone knows. You all know. What are you not supposed to do? You're not supposed to scratch it. Everyone knows this, but yet pretty much everyone, what do you do? You still scratch it. And, and how can that be? I mean, are you forgetting? It's not that you've forgotten. It's just you get this almost uncontrollable urge to scratch that itch. There's almost nothing you can do about it. It's only when you try really hard and you keep telling yourself, like, don't scratch, don't, don't scratch, don't scratch. Only then can you seem to overcome that urge. You just have to constantly remind yourself, you have to be thinking about it all the time. And that's how our sin works. You know what to do. You know what not to do. I hope. you know. But you can forget you can set that knowledge aside. And when it comes to sin or spiritual growth, or assurance or whatever, this is a problem because you want you need that knowledge of the truth in front of you all the time. just staring you at the faith, in the face reminding you what to do, guiding you. And that's why this first lesson that we're pulling out here is all believers need reminders. Even mature believers need reminders all the time. It's just another reason why regular reading of the Bible, it's not just a a chore. It's essential for all Christians, even mature Christians. Look, as you read the scriptures, especially those who've been around for a while, you may not read something new but i guarantee you will find something you will be reminded of some truth that you need to keep in the front of your mind every time also this is the value of memorizing scripture memorize key verses keep them in your mind and and meditate on them you know print some verses out print them out put them on the wall put them in your car i did that in college i printed out some verses on some some key verses on some sins i was struggling with i just pasted them on the wall And just the fact of seeing them and being reminded of the truth, it goes a long way in helping you to carry them out and to live them out. So this first lesson from our text is simple, yet extremely important, that all believers need reminders. You need reminders of the truth, which is found in Scripture. So do what you can to keep God's word before you at all times, in the front of your mind, in your mind. Now let's move on to a second lesson here, which is very much related from verse 13. All shepherds need to remind. All believers need reminders. All shepherds need to remind. This comes from verse 13. Look there. He says, I consider it right. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. He says, I consider it right, meaning this is his obligation, this is his duty as a shepherd. For shepherds, this is part of their job description. Their responsibility is to remind. He says he considers it right, as long as he's alive, to stir you up. To stir up means to to wake someone up, to to jolt them so that they're, they're awake, they're alert. Imagine you're on a long road trip. It's late at night. Your friend is driving, and they start dozing off behind the wheel. And the the car slowly starts veering off the side of the road. And what would you do? Well, you would quickly stir them up. You you would jolt them awake. You would say, "Hey, wake up! Pay attention to the road." That's the same word. You're stirring them up. For Christians, there's the danger of spiritual drowsiness, where you can you can get caught up, you can get distracted you get caught up by the things of the world and distracted from following Christ, it's equivalent to, to falling asleep behind the spiritual wheel. And when that happens, you also, you need a wake-up call. You need someone to stir you up, to, to shout in your ear if need be and remind you. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you. Remember to walk in a manner worthy of your calling that's what Peter is doing. That's what he's going to continue doing to issue these these wake-up calls, these reminder calls. And for shepherds, that's what they need to do. It's part of their job description to remind. For preachers, teachers especially, this is a very important function. The task of guiding and guarding the sheep is often accomplished by way of reminder. For teachers, sooner or later, if you're teaching the Bible, you're going to run out of something new to teach on. And if you've got people who've been around for a while, hopefully they start learning a thing or two, God's word won't always be so new that they're going to hear it before. That's okay because even though they have the head knowledge, they need that fresh conviction from the truth every time. They need to be reminded Always. This is why reminding is one of the main functions of our church gatherings. We gather each week, and it's not always to learn something new. It's not even possible. Oftentimes, we gather just to be reminded of what we already know, but to help us put it into practice. If you've been around the church for 10, 20, 30 years, a lot of this stuff isn't new. But that's okay because the word is still valuable. It still convicts. It still guides. And we still need it. So let me say this, don't tune out the word just because you've heard it before. Don't tune it out just because it's not new. In my old church when I was uh, the college pastor there, I remember teaching the college group one time, and my entire lesson was on the gospel, just like the basics, just what the gospel is. My entire lesson talked about the sin problem that we have before holy and just God, where all people have sinned. And everyone has violated God's laws. It's because of our sin that it's like we owe this infinite debt to God's holiness. And we can't pay that back. We can't repay the the sin debt that we have accrued. And so we deserve his justice, his wrath, his judgment for our sin. It's quite just. We deserve this condemnation. There's nothing we can do about it. We don't deserve heaven. No amount of good works is going to get us into heaven. But God, in love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay that sin debt for us. Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins, that we might be forgiven, that we might go free. And and now in him, by believing in him, by knowing him, you can be forgiven of that debt and you can be made righteous by God's grace. Forgiveness, redemption, eternal life are offered to you now in Christ. Now, these college students I was teaching taught this gospel lesson to Most of them grew up in the church. And they had been going to Sunday school since they were five. I mean, they knew it all. They knew this gospel. They had heard it a million times. I was telling them nothing new. And I knew that. I knew that I wasn't telling them anything new. So at the end of the message, I talked to them directly. And I said this, look. I know most of you already know this already. haven't told you anything new. I said to them, but some of you, because you've heard this before, you've tuned out everything I just said. In your minds, you thought to yourself, oh, another message on the gospel. I mean, we've heard this before. Give us something new. Give us something good. And so I said to them, you know, if this is you, you're missing the point because this is the something good. If you're already tired of being reminded of what Jesus did for you, you're probably not going to like heaven very much. And there's a deeper problem here because for those who have been truly redeemed by the Savior, they never get tired of hearing about the redemption that the Savior purchased for them. That doesn't get old. They don't find it boring, but these same old truths stir their hearts every time. It, It reminds them why they're living this life. Why they've forsaken everything? Why they're following the Lord? It reminds them, oh yeah, that's why. Remembering what they know motivates them to press on. When I was done with that lesson, one of the girls came up to me and she said, You know, I had actually tuned out your entire message. Until you, you said that that last part. And she said it, it pierced her heart, you know, as the Bible says. And you know, maybe some of you today need your hearts pierced as well. Have you grown tired of old truths and don't let that happen don't let your heart grow cold to the gospel it's the job of shepherds largely not to give you something new every week but to remind and come to appreciate that just to be reminded because we all need reminders and as a side note there's another application here for for you all and we learned from peter's example that all shepherds need to remind but who's a shepherd Pastors, elders, sure, of course. But look, are you a husband? Then you are the shepherd of your wife. Or are you parents? You both are the shepherds of your children. And so you two need to apply this, this message of reminder, this task of reminding. Part of your shepherding needs to involve reminding them of the truth of God's word. Now, keep in mind, though, by reminding, I'm not talking about barking orders to others. You might be thinking, oh, yeah, I do that. I remind my wife all the time. I tell her to do this. I tell her to do that. I'm great at reminding. (laughs) Not what we're talking about. We're not talking about bossing people around, but shepherding them where you're taking them to Scripture. You're reminding your family this is who God is. This is what God has done for our family. This is why we follow him. You remind your family in a spirit of love and humility and grace, not as a boss, but as a shepherd. So men and parents, understand this part of your job and and take it seriously. All believers need reminders, and all shepherds need to remind. These are the first two lessons we learn from this passage today, and they go together. We have two more lessons. They also go to leather go to, go together rather, number three and number four. So let's move on now to lesson number three from this passage. Number three, this life is for doing the Lord's work. This life is for doing the Lord's work. Look again at verse 13. He says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing, verse 14, That the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. As we saw in verse 13, part of his responsibility as a shepherd was to remind the churches, remind the sheep. But for how long? How long was he supposed to issue these reminders? Well, just until he retires? I don't think so. There was no retirement for Peter. And there is no retirement for God's servants, and that includes you. You serve as Peter served until death. Now, don't get me wrong. It's okay to retire from worldly labor. By all means, go for it. But not from God's labor, so to speak. Not from serving God, because this life is for serving the Lord, doing the Lord's work. Look how Peter phrases this. He says, I consider it right as lo- to stir you up by way of reminder, he says in this phrase, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. Earthly dwelling. That word literally is the word for a tent. Many ancient Middle Easterners used to live in tents. For us, it's easiest to think of Native Americans, you know, living in their teepees. These were temporary dwellings. You set up a tent. You live there for a little while, and when it's time to move on, you pack it up and you move on. And Peter uses this word for tent to describe his body. His body is like a tent, meaning his body is a temporary dwelling place. But a temporary dwelling place for what? For his soul or spirit. For his immortal soul. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You get that? And that's true. You, as a person, are a soul or a spirit. And right now, you have a body. That body's not going to last. Your body will die, it's going to go back to dust. But your soul will not. For all people, their soul will live forever, eternally. Everyone either eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. But death is not the end of existence, and Peter knew that. That's what he's saying. Death death is the end for his physical body, his tent, but not his soul or his self, and the same is true for all people. So we can all say that our bodies are our temporary dwellings right now. If this being the case, Peter was prepared to use his time in this body for the Lord. If we're only given one life to live on this earth, just a limited amount of time on this earth, we all are, then we should use that time wisely. What does that look like? What does it look like to use your time wisely on this earth? Or well, for those who have been redeemed by the Lord, it looks like using your time to serve your new master. And that's what Peter models before us. He was striving to do the Lord's work right up until his final breath. He truly believed that this life was just to be spent, to be poured out for the Lord. Even though he knew he was going to die relatively soon, he's not checking out. He's not going on a vacation. He's just doing what he always did, serving the Lord. And that tells you a lot. That tells you a lot. The real test of what a person is living for is how they live when they know their days are numbered. you hear stories about this, you know, movies about this, of someone who gets a terminal illness, they only have a few months to live. So what do they do? Well, they, they leave their job. They leave their responsibilities. Some leave their family. And they go do the things they've always wanted to do. For some, they go visit all those places in the world they always wanted to see. Others do these crazy stunts like skydiving and stuff like that. Some use this as an occasion to indulge the flesh, and they go and they fulfill all those sinful desires that they always wanted to but felt too guilty to do. And when you see people living like this, it tells you what they were living for, for themselves. They were living for pleasure in life. But what about you? What if you had one month to live? How would you live? Think about this question. Would you still go to church on Sunday? How you answer that question will say a lot about what you live for. Would you still serve the Lord? Would you still read the Bible? Would you still strive for holiness and try really hard not to sin? Or would you just break down and you would just indulge all your fleshly desires? Peter leaves behind such a good example for he was truly prepared to keep on serving the Lord until the very end. He knew that this life was for... Doing the Lord's work. And that doesn't change whether you've got one day left or 10,000 days left. That doesn't change. So, do you believe this? Is this your outlook on life? And the concept of retirement is relatively new in the world today. For the past couple hundred years, people never retired. You kept working until you dropped because you had to but now you can retire, you can enjoy the good life. And that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with retiring from earthly labor. But if you retire, do you also have plans on retiring from serving the Lord? And I hope you don't make those plans. For those who are in their retirement years, Jesus would tell you, keep running the race, keep enduring, keep persevering, and finish well. When a runner nears the finish line. He doesn't slow down. He gets that last win and he, start, he starts sprinting. He wants to finish well. And if you're out there, you have the freedom that retirement affords, great. Use that freedom and that time to serve the Lord. Ask yourself, I've got this time now. How can I serve the Lord even more? Now for Peter, he didn't have the luxury of retirement. His days were numbered. He says in verse 14, that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. It was nearly time for his tent to be taken down, for him to move on. And Peter was old. His death was close when he's writing this. He he was already in his 60s, maybe 70. And back then, when the average lifespan was 40, that was very old. And furthermore, he's living in Rome during a time when Nero, the emperor, was ramping up his persecution of Christians. And so it doesn't take a prophet to realize that if you are the leader of the church in Rome, like Peter, you've got a target on your back. You're you're probably going to die. Now, it's possible that Peter received some revelation from the Lord that he was going to die pretty soon. It's possible. We don't know that. We do know, though, however... That way back in John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus told Peter prophetically that he would die a sudden and violent death in old age. This word for imminent in verse 14 can mean swift. So Peter could be thinking of that, those final words that Jesus gave to him at the end of John chapter 21. Either way, church history tells us that both were true. Peter would die soon and he would die swiftly from 2 Peter. It's well known in early church that shortly after writing Second Peter, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Tradition says that Peter, not feeling himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died, asked to be crucified upside down. Now whether or not he really asked, we don't know for sure, but certainly this was a violent, excruciating but swift death. And still, though, even though Peter knew a bad death was coming, he knew it wasn't going to be pleasant, we never see him fearing or fretting or getting all depressed. He still writes with joy because he is assured of his salvation, like we learned last week. He knows that death simply means being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. For those who know him, it's the same thing. And what's better than that? You want to keep hanging around here? So I hope you can share Peter's outlook on life and Peter's outlook on death. This life, however many days we have, it's for serving the Lord. It's for doing the Lord's work. And then death, it's going to come for all of us. It's no surprise. But unlike Peter, we may not know in advance. Still, for believers, death, not to be feared, not to be feared at all. For we are simply packing up our tent and moving to a better country. Now, there's one last lesson we want to look at from this passage. It's in verse 15. Let's let's finish with this. Lesson number four. I told you the last two go together as well. Number four, this life is for making the Lord known. This life is for doing the Lord's work. Number four, this life is for making the Lord known, from verse 15. Look there again, verse 15. He says, And I will also be diligent, that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter again is referencing the time of his death. Now he describes it as his departure. The word for departure is a great word. The word in Greek is Exodus. That's that's a Greek word. You are thinking rightly at the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We get that title from the Greek word, and he's using that Greek word here, Exodus, which shows what he's thinking about death. Same thing. Death is not a termination. It's a transfer. The Bible consistently teaches that death is not the end of the line. It's not the end of existence. It is a change of existence. Just as the Jews left Egypt and entered the promised land in the Exodus, so at death we leave this world and this body and we enter the next. And for those who know Christ and follow Christ, that's going to be heaven. Now in verse 15, Peter says that even after death, though, he wants to remind them. He still wants to be reminding them even after he's gone. He wants them to be able to call these things to mind even when he's long gone. And Peter says he's going to be diligent to see that this happens. How? How is he going to be diligent to ensure that even after he's gone, they're going to remember what he's telling them? Well, the implication is by his writings, by this letter and others. Peter has labored to leave behind these truths written down. And he's left behind for these churches his Apostolic testimony. And through this written account, the churches can always be reminded of God's truths. And today we have Peter's and the other apostles' final testimonies, their written accounts, which come as inspired scripture. Peter leaves behind for us two letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, both of which are, are treasures. We just preached through 1 Peter so we know how, how wonderful it is. But did you know? First and Second Peter are not Peter's only marks on the New Testament. The gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. Did you know that? Mark was the author, of course, but Mark was not an apostle. Rather, he was Peter's right-hand man, as you could say. And Peter, in Rome, provided Mark with his material for his gospel. Mark's gospel is basically the written record of Peter's testimony and preaching. You might say, well, where am I getting this? Well, it comes down to us from the very earliest church history. I'm talking the early 2nd century AD, so right after the apostles died. And although church history is not infallible, we understand that. This is a unanimous testimony. It's not really contested. No reason not to take it. For example, the early church father, Pippius writes, for instance, quote, Mark, having been Peter's translator, wrote accurately, not however in order, as much as he remembered of the things said or done by Jesus. End quote. And then Irenaeus, he writes quote, After Peter and Paul's death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. End quote. So if you accept this, testimony and there's no reason not to then we learn that the gospel of mark is also part of peter's contribution part of his testimony to the churches and he leaves behind really the most valuable testimony out there the life and the teaching of jesus the gospel of mark first second peter all the others have reminded the churches for centuries but notice this point, and this is the lesson that I want to point to here. Peter, he really wants the churches to be reminded of something after he's gone. He, he's diligently laboring, he's writing, so that they remember something after he's gone. And what is that? What is it that he wants them to remember so badly? Well, notice he's not concerned that the people remember him. Rather, he's concerned that the people remember the lord he wants them to remember not himself but the lord why well because not only is this life for doing the lord's work but our last lesson this this life is for making the lord known peter's not setting up a memorial for himself as he's going to die he's setting up a memorial for the lord and for the truth and this is a great final lesson for us to remember The lesson to live out. What's your legacy? What type of a legacy do you want to leave behind? What do you want people to remember after you're gone? Are you so concerned that they will remember you? There's nothing wrong, of course, with wanting your, your family, your loved ones to remember you, think fondly of you, of course. But are you also greatly concerned, more concerned that they remember the Lord, that they come to know the Lord, that they still follow the Lord even after you're gone. That should be your great concern. You you can't control how people live after you're gone, but you can control how you live while you're here and therefore live to make the Lord known. Live to make the Lord known both now and after you're gone. Leave a legacy of godliness behind. Instill in your children or your loved ones or your friends, people around you, a hunger for the word, a reliance on God's word. Live in such a way that when people do remember you, they remember how you so faithfully cherished God's word. And that memory will, Lord willing, compel them to do the same. How we live and the testimony we leave behind is is important. Our last words Either coming verbally or just through our lives are extremely important. Peter knew this in a special way he leaves behind his last words for us. And all of 2 Peter, but really captured in this passage. Coming as God's inspired testimony from a man facing his end, we want to pay special attention and take heed to all of the lessons in 2 Peter, and especially these we're reminded of today. All believers need reminders. All shepherds need to remind. This life is for doing the Lord's work. This life is for making the Lord known. We remember these and put them into practice. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we we bow before you, aiming to indeed put these reminders, these lessons into practice. We confess we are all too quick to forget. Forget what we know where this, this truth that you have given to us isn't guiding us and directing our steps, but we we get sidetracked. Lord, help us all to keep your word, your truth, ever before us in our minds, in the front of our minds, guiding us day by day, because we want to live for you. This life is for serving you. It is for making you known. That is our aim. Help us to do that by always being reminded of you and your truth. And may we remind others around us as well, constantly pointing one another to to the truth, to the Savior, to you. Thank you for our time. And we pray you bless us as we go from here, uh, serving one another, serving you. In your name we pray, amen.